0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. Take your Bible and if you don't mind, turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, if you're brand new to the Bible, is near the back of your New Testament. Short letter written by the apostle Peter, a man who walked with Jesus, knew Jesus, and writes a letter to a suffering church and a marginalized church. And we've been in a series called Stand Firm. We're talking about what it means to exist as a Christian in society where you're not up front and center, but you're pushed to the margins of society. And already we've looked at some themes that Peter has, has brought up to us, the theme of holiness, The themes of submission to authority and what that looks like in our day. The themes of how husbands and wives should address and love one another. And how that reflects Christ to a culture that doesn't understand that kind of love. And last week we looked at how we are called to be a blessing to those who persecute us as Jesus called us to. Peter addresses how how to respond uh, in persecution with a blessing, with an attitude like that. And today in this section, we are going to be in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 3, verses 13 through 29, and picking up on that same theme of how should we respond as a blessing when we are being persecuted and when we are marginalized and pushed on the outside. And one thing that he, he brings up that he's going to touch on today is an issue that you and I all deal with in a variety of ways, and that's the topic of fear Fear. Now, fear grabs hold of us when we are called to love in the face of suffering and hits us different ways, but it's something that we all struggle with. Personally, fear is something I have to fight and battle regularly. When I know that I'm called to love someone or some some body of people and I, I'm struggling with fear. Questions come to my mind like, am I going to look foolish? Uh, and, and is this going to be worth it? Really, those two questions are, are the two biggest questions I'll probably deal with the most. Am I going to look foolish? And is this, after all, going to be worth it? Whatever the pushback, whatever the suffering, whatever the challenge might be. And it manifests itself in, in, in these kind of spectrums. Like it can, it can show up in a joylessness in my soul sort of a stinginess when it comes to my time or my money or my thinking. It, it can move to sort of a self-centered immobilization. I can overthink something, sort of a paralysis by analysis. I'm just thinking so much about what I should do and what it might cost that I, I don't move and I, I, I stall out. And it can even manifest in anger. So, so fear can have this, this result of, of paralysis and in, in even being angry at somebody that I'm called to love. And Peter addresses this issue of fear, and we're, I'm real thankful that he does, because here's a man who not only should we listen to because he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an apostle, but Peter himself experienced the crippling effects of fear. He knew what it was like to be cornered when he promised that he would never deny Jesus, cornered you know, in the shadows by, by a small girl and unable to, to give witness that he indeed knew and followed Jesus. Even to the point where he's calling down oaths. I mean, he's, he's publicly saying, no, I, I condemn myself. I, I, I do not know Jesus. He knew what, what fear could do to him. And he also knew the experience of peace and power when he would stand up and under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit say to people who threatened to kill him, we must obey God rather than men. So here's a man who knew the experience that you and I struggle with when it comes to fear in the face of suffering. And I think what got Peter through by the power of God was him directing his gaze away from what he's afraid of And to the glories of Christ. And in this section of Scripture, I believe that Peter points us to three glories of Christ that free us to love others without fear. Three glories of Christ that free us to love others without fear. When I say glory, a brief definition of glory is, is a shining attribute. Think of it that way. So it's like a, a shining reflection of who Jesus is. It doesn't say everything that he is. It's one aspect, one shining, glorious aspect of who he is. And like a, like a, like a jeweler in a diamond store, uh, Peter is going to take the diamond of Christ against the backdrop of fear, of suffering, and he's going to turn the diamond three different times in this passage. Three different turns, and we're going to see three different glories about Christ. The first time he turns it is in verses 15 through 17. He wants us to see Christ as holy Lord. Christ as holy Lord. Then he wants us to see in verses 18 through 21, Christ as suffering Savior. And then lastly, he wants us to see in verse 22, Christ as ascended King. So let's pray and we will get going with chapter 3, 13 through 29. Father, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you open up our our eyes. You would open up our ears. Lord, you would open up our hearts. Help us to receive all and everything that you would have for us. Lord, Lord, would you remove, expose, show us where we are fearful to love others. Send us out as, as you called us to, as you commanded us to in Matthew 28. Send us out just just freely and, and fully loving people as you would have us to. Lord, help us to resist the fear and, uh, and the fear of suffering, Lord, through looking at and gazing upon the glories of Jesus. In your name that we pray, amen. All right, first, let's look at Christ as Holy Lord, and let's pick it up in verse 13. So he he gets back into the... The, uh, the letter here in verse 13 by saying, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So here's, he starts the letter off, he starts this part of the letter off by saying, that Generally speaking, if you and I are zealous for doing good, whether that's to our employer or whether that's to the authorities around us, the government, whether that's to our families, our neighborhoods. If we are zealous for doing good, who is there to harm you? Uh, Generally speaking, nobody. Generally speaking, we should, if we are being zealous for good things, not expect ongoing and, and constant persecution. We should not expect that as as Christians. Now, there will be times of that. That's why he's writing this letter. There will be certain times of persecution. That's, that's, That's certain. And that's exactly what this whole passage is talking about. But generally speaking... You and I are to be zealous on the job. We're supposed to be zealous in our neighborhoods, zealous in the city that we're called to. And we shouldn't be walking around expecting every moment of the day some form of persecution our way. And and you've ever bumped up against a Christian like that? Just everything is a persecution. Everything is related to, well, it must be because I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, maybe not. Maybe you didn't get the promotion because you're not a hard worker. I mean, that's a possibility. Uh, Maybe you're not being persecuted because the Starbucks cup is red and and it doesn't say something else. That's not persecution, okay? Generally speaking, if we're zealous for good things, we should expect peace where we are. We should expect blessing. But persecution will come, even when you're like that. Even when you are all for the company's success, persecution sometimes will come because you're pushed on the margins because of your faith in Jesus. So this will happen, and that's why he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. The implication, there will be times when you and I suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Blessed means you will be happy. You will be filled with joy even when those times of suffering comes. Now, here's how he sets up the next thing that you and I struggle with uh, so much in terms of suffering. He says, have no fear of them. He does not define what them is. And it's helpful that he doesn't define what the them is because you and I all have whatever that is. And he's writing to a, a letter to a people who have a lot of different possibilities in terms of what they're afraid of. So he says, have no fear of them nor be troubled. In other words, anxiety and worry could fill up their hearts and fear could overcome them and immobilize this this struggling church, and so he's saying, "Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled." In verse fifteen, says, "But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy." That's the first place he goes. The first way to overcome the fear of man, the fear of what if, the fear of what could happen if this person responds this way, or they, you know, do this to me, is is to have a greater fear over your heart. And that's the fear of the Lord. So he says, Have no fear of them, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So there, Christ as holy Lord. Now this word honor is very important. When you honor something, you set it apart. That's why some of your translations might even say, Set apart Christ as holy. Or some of your translations might say sanctify. It has the same idea that Jesus had when he taught the Lord's Prayer. And he says, hallowed be your name, honored be your name, sanctified and set apart be your name. Now, when you honor or you set apart or you sanctify uh, something, anything in your life, you separate it from what's common and what's ordinary, So you have common things, you have ordinary things, and you know what's sanctified in your house because you set it apart from what's common and ordinary, and you put it on the top shelf. We were putting together a Christmas tree today, and it reminded me as a kid that when I was a little boy, uh, we had ornaments that were common and ordinary, and back in that day, they came in these boxes. You know, they would just, you go get the box of the ornaments, you pulled it out, and it was like all the same color blue. You know what I'm saying? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but... Those are the common ones, but my mom had an extraordinary ornament that it was put on last. I mean, it was kind of like the star at the tree. Ours was like this little wreath. You put it up at the top of the tree. You, you separated it from everything else because you didn't want that thing to fall down. And it was it was sort of sanctified as ornaments go. <laughs> Silly illustration. But you all have things in your life that are set apart from the common and the ordinary. Well, that's what this word means. Honor it. Set apart. Sanctify in your heart. It's, a, it's an attitude, a discipline of the heart. This is the—it really takes place right here. It, it's, it's a decision of the heart to say, I'm going to set apart. I'm going to hallow. I'm going to sanctify Christ as holy. I'm going to remove Christ from my— Common likes and interests to something altogether different. In other words, don't think of Christ as one of many things that make up your wonderful personality. For instance, I like criminal minds, I like the Miami Dolphins, I like camping, and I like Jesus. That's, that's uh, you know, if you if, like on Facebook, I got all those off of Facebook, I don't, I, except for the Miami Dolphins. I don't know where I came up with that. Nobody ever likes the Miami Dolphins. But there's a way of thinking about Christ where he is just one of many things that make up our personality. And he's not to be one of many things that make up our personality, but he's to be the one over our personality. It's fine to like all of those things. But it's not fine to to consider Christ among many of those things. He's to be the Lord over all of those things in his supreme holiness, in his set-apart place. We're to honor him as that. We're to remove him from the common thinking and set him apart. Sanctify his name. Sanctify who he is in in our lives. Remove him from, from just normal, everyday thinking and say, Lord, you are over all of these things. As, even as I'm enjoying them. He goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. So here, as we sanctify the Lord, Peter says we should anticipate some questions coming our way. Specifically, we should anticipate people asking, w- why? Why? Give me the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I have never in my Christian life ever had somebody come up to me and ask those exact words. They never said, excuse me, can you please tell me the reason for the hope that you have? But I have had questions that sounded more like this. Why? Or, well, why not? Or, huh? Those are all manifestations, probably, of questions that you and I will get as we set apart and sanctify Christ the Lord as holy. It will affect our behavior. It will change the way that we respond and and, and change our behavior in such that people will take notice, and if we have a relationship of love with them, they'll ask questions. They won't ask questions if we don't have a relationship and we're just awkward, but if we are loving Christ and loving people, oftentimes we will get asked questions like why or why not. Well, what are some contexts? What what should we anticipate? What kind of context would we be asked the question of why and why not? Well, he's already addressed several, several areas. Just by way of reminder, he's already addressed marriage. When we don't cut our spouse out from under, you know, just cut her down or when we speak honorably of our spouse instead of complaining to our friends at work or whoever it is, um, that's different from the culture, and that shines forth the glory of Christ. I mean, Peter's already said that, you know, unbelieving spouses can be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct— so that holy living has a, has a powerful impact on people. Sometimes we think, I'm not, not doing anything. Listen, light shines in the darkness. And Jesus has said, you and I are salt and light. You, you can't hide a city on a hill. So just being where we are, living as Christ is Lord, is going to raise questions among people. He's mentioned speech. Listen, when we choose not to use profanity, When we choose not to laugh at demeaning or off-colored or blatantly racist jokes with people we're building a relationship with. Now, it's easy if you're not trying to build a relationship, but it becomes hard when you're trying to build a relationship in an effort to share the gospel with people. When you're trying to build friendships, and then you don't laugh at the demeaning joke, and then you don't laugh at the profane humor, it it raises questions. Why not? Why? When you choose to honor and respect your supervisor or your boss, when everybody else is complaining, listen, when you make sacrificial choices, for instance, like when everybody at the family table at Christmas is dogpiling with their words that one family member and you choose to defend that person that's awkward now it's sacrificial according to the bible but at the dinner table it's awkward so another way of saying sacrificial is just awkward all right when you suggest a different restaurant for the meeting place because that restaurant objectifies women why <laughs> why not when you open up your home to someone in need, whether that's just being a, a good neighbor and just meeting friends and, 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 and um, helping somebody who's lonely in your neighborhood or helping with fostering or f- helping with adoption, you'll get asked questions like, why, why would you do such a thing? I mean, here's, here's one that we're increasingly gonna bump up against. When you can't make the game or the practice because of your commitment to the local church, I'm not saying you've got to be, at, you know, everything, the, the, every time the doors of the church are open, you're there. But in this culture, if you have to make some hard choices about some games or practices or leagues or whatever, this is the sports-driven city. So when you prioritize your life around the local church, it looks odd and awkward. And it will lead to some awkward conversations. And we will view these as as troubles and problems, or we can view these as opportunities. Peter says, view these things as opportunities. Embrace the awkwardness that comes with following Jesus. So he says, be prepared for some awkward moments. And then he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Don't get angry at people. Don't don't come across overly spiritual Just state your reasons and do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Do it with dignity. And he says, verse 16: having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be for God's will, than for doing evil. So we should anticipate there'll be some times when it gets a little awkward because we're following Jesus and we're. We're trying to build relationships, but we can't go that far. We can't cross those lines. And so we get asked the question of why. We need to be able to say why. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our Lord. And and His opinion matters. So that's the first thing. Set apart, sanctify Christ as holy Lord. And then He goes into Christ as Savior in verses 18 through 21. So not only set Him apart as holy Lord over all, that will resist fear, that will will conquer fear. But more than that, consider that he's also the suffering Savior, the suffering Savior. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered. So when we are suffering, we're supposed to remember, wait a second, Christ suffered. And that for signals, he's answering the question, well, why? I mean, we, we want to know, why should I endure that? Why should I make things awkward? Why should I—is that worth it? Is that really worth it? Well, it is worth it, because it says, For Christ also suffered. Now, He suffered uniquely. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's us. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So do you see that here Christ suffered in a way that you and I will never suffer, namely once for sins, we'll never suffer for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous as a perfect substitute that he might bring us to God, like only Christ can. And and he's put to death in the flesh, but notice the word here, but made alive in the Spirit. I think we're supposed to capture the idea that Christ suffered for us and was vindicated. We will embrace suffering to the degree that we know it's worth it. And here Peter is letting us know, listen, it's worth it. In the same way that Christ suffered and was vindicated. Do you see that? but was made alive in his spirit. So yes, he suffered. Yes, he suffered excruciatingly in a way that you and I will never suffer. So he did it. He suffered in a way that you and I can't copy. And he has to also suffer in a way that we are to to be an example of for us. So we're supposed to suffer like that. But in the same way that he was vindicated, you will be vindicated. I will be vindicated as, as we suffer. Listen, Jesus said... Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I mean, the question on that one is, okay, that sounds really nice, but how can I rejoice and be glad like you say now? He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Vindication is all over the New Testament. Because reward language is all over the New Testament. Jesus himself says, you will be rewarded when somebody accuses you falsely. When they persecute you. When they utter things behind your back. When they say things about you that aren't true of you. He says, rejoice. Rejoice and actually be glad. Because in that very moment, your reward in heaven is. It just is. It's there. It is, and it is great. Your reward is great. Vindication is, it, it will happen, and it is a reality right now. So in the same way that Jesus was vindicated, you and I will be vindicated. Notice what else he says about the suffering Savior in verse 19. He was made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through water okay so that's that's a lot right so there's been a lot of controversy and confusion over the years of what does this mean does this mean that there's some kind of post death evangelism that Jesus does Or what is he doing here? Um, Well, the answer is no. There's no post-death evangelism that is happening here on the part of Jesus. Uh, This passage is all about how God gives people plenty of opportunity and waits patiently for for their repentance before any judgment comes. This is primarily about how Christ, through Noah, went and proclaimed patiently in the midst of, rejection Christ himself went and proclaimed patiently through Noah in the midst of rejection so he went and proclaimed Christ himself went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison that is those who rejected Noah's message and are now imprisoned for their rebellion and rejection of of the message to repent because they formerly did not obey when God's patience you hear see that that's, a, that's a, a scene of God's patience. That, all those years that Noah was building that ark, a picture of God's patience. Noah preaching, Noah proclaiming, and Christ there with Noah as God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And still, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. In other words, a few, eight people, were brought safely. That's not as many as, as maybe we had hoped, but they all heard, they all had opportunity, and eight responded, eight repented, eight were on the ark at the, at the end. And Christ was there, proclaiming patiently in the midst of certain rejection. We know that in, in Hebrews 11, it says that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving for the saving of his household and by this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith so listen christ is the suffering savior even there even there with noah with noah and as as noah is proclaiming as noah is mocked as i mean noah is viewed as a utter fool for years until the rain came down. And you might be viewed as an utter fool by your friends, by your family, by some higher-ups, by some people that you really don't want them to view you as a fool, by some people that you really want to be their friend. You're really working hard for that. You're really praying for that, and yet you could still be viewed as a fool. Listen, Christ says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As he sends us out, he's with us like he was with Noah. Christ went to Noah, it says. Th- those words, he went. And in the same way, he is with us. And he is helping us. And he is with us always, scripture says, even to the end of the age. So note the patience of God, both in Noah's day and note the patience of God in ours. Second Peter says that God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we proclaim the gospel, when we stand firm in the faith, even when we are looked upon as awkward, we are, we are standing with Christ and in his patience, and we are standing with 2 Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish, and none of it is wasted. Not a single moment, not a single hour, not an awkward look. Nothing that we will ever experience is wasted. It will all be vindicated. God will pull it all back up. He will show it all. There will not be a single moment that you and I suffer for the gospel that will not be vindicated. I mean, remember Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water, you will not lose your reward. You think, a cup of water? Does that really matter? It does. It matters. You would— you'll forget it. You'll do things and you'll forget it and God himself will remind you by his grace of things that you did as a disciple of Jesus and it will be vindicated. Well, look at verse 21. This is one of the most powerful verses in this whole passage. Look, here it says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter wants us to note something here. Jesus is resurrected. So he is vindicated in his suffering. He came up out of the grave because of the power of the Holy Spirit and now saves you. Baptism now saves you. But the question could be, well, okay, so... The water of baptism saves us? Well, he answers that. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not from some fancy baptismal, not from some holy water that the priest or somebody blesses. That's not what saves you. What saves you is an appeal to God. Do you see that? Those three words? An appeal to God. Not the water, not the cleansing, not the ceremony. An appeal to God for a good conscience. God, I have an evil conscience. I have an evil heart. I need a new heart. I need a heart that beats with your life. I need a heart that beats with your living presence. Uh, I I, I need a heart that is aware of sin. Uh, I need your heart. I need your life on the inside of me. I appeal to you for your life. I appeal to you. I need your life on the inside. I need you to cleanse me and forgive me of my sins. That appeal saves you. And if you are a Christian today, and your sins have been washed away, it is not because you had a great ceremony at your baptism. It is not because your parents were just really great people. It's not because you got cleaned up just just the right way, or you said the right sinner's prayer, or whatever we're tempted to think it is. I was raised up in church, so naturally. No. God, by His mercy, by His grace, called you, drew you, and, and at some point you made an appeal to God for a good conscience. And he answered that prayer. That's, that's how we're different. That's how we're renewed and we're washed and we're changed. And we will stop nothing short of that. That's, that's what we want for every person who ever enters into the doors of Grace Church. We, we, don't, we don't want cleaned up people. We don't want somehow perfect people. We want people that have a renewed and a new conscience, a, a good conscience People who have appealed to God for new life and God answering that prayer. That's what we want for our kids. We don't want good, like, nice, happy kids that don't hurt each other. Well, God, I, I do kind of want that. I don't want my kids to hurt each other anymore, but I want them to have a new life, a new heart. I want them to have a new, a new reality face-to-face. And that happens for anybody who appeals to God. And, that, and that's, that's what he's getting at. Christ is the suffering Savior now. He now saves you. Do you see that? Baptism through Christ, through his resurrection, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. As we appeal to God based on his resurrection, it's not even the appeal that saves us, it's the resurrection of Christ that saves us. But because he's resurrected, as we appeal to God, anybody that appeals to God based on the resurrection of Christ gets new life, it gets a new heart. And, and, and don't be deceived, 1 Corinthians 6 says. Do not be deceived. None of us came from, from people who just naturally had a great heart. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And the implication there is such were all of you. All of you. We were all like that. N- nobody came from we were, we were likely to be saved. I was likely to be saved based on my whatever. No, you were not likely to be saved. You appealed to God for a good conscience. And First Corinthians 6 says, and because you appealed to God, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Jesus saves people. He's a suffering Savior now. And look at verse 22. This is the last thing that, that Peter leaves us with. He turns the diamond one last time and he wants us to see the glory of Christ, the ascended King. The ascended King. Ascended means the, the lifted up one, the, not only the resurrected, but raised up to heaven the one who is alive and ruling over all the world. So look at verse 22. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. We need to grab hold of the reality that Christ, who is with us by His Spirit, if you were to say, well, where is He? It's important that we're able to give a defense and say by verse by verse 22, He has gone. He has gone. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The picture there is that he has defeated all evil through his resurrection. And that he has triumphed over darkness and triumphed over death and is seated in victory. And that's where he is. With angels, and authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So all of those things that are so much more powerful than us, all those things that we should be afraid of, like angels should be afraid of that, authorities should be afraid of that, powers out there we should be afraid of that. Well get this, Christ has subjected all of those things under him. He's the Lord over every angel and every demonic angel. He is Lord over every authority, big, small, and otherwise. He is the Lord over every power. Everything that's being boasted of as a superpower. I mean, everything that we're afraid of in the world today, Christ is over. I mean, you just think about Syria. Everybody's trying to figure out who's in charge of Syria. Based on 22, well, I don't know, who, I don't know who, who, who's there. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out who's, what government's in charge and what tribe's in charge of who. Well, based on 22, Christ is in charge of Syria. He's over that land just like he's over this land, just like he's over every life there, and just like he's over every life in this room as the ascended king. The one who went and proclaimed, the one who suffered once for sins, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. We can point to where he is. He is in heaven. So a question could be, how is that good news in the face of suffering when I'm called to love somebody or called to love people? How is that good news? Well, where's God when I'm afraid? How is that good news? Well, the good news that he is gone is that he is not suffering now. Now. Hebrews 10 says that since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If he is suffering now, he is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he himself is weak. He himself is needing help in his suffering. He's needing emotional security as he's suffering, as we are needing emotional security. And that's not good news. But Peter says he's not. He's ascended He's gone into heaven. He, he suffered once for sins and he is not suffering now. And because he has, has suffered the way that he has, he's able to sympathize with us in our suffering and he's able to give us mercy and give us grace to help in time of need. So maybe right now you know that you're in a time of need. And maybe. Maybe right now you know a time of, of need is coming because God is going to call you to love somebody that's difficult to love. Well, because Christ has ascended, He is able to give us His very comfort. 2 Corinthians says that as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You know, He's able to comfort you, He's able to outcomfort your suffering, He's able to outdo and outlove and outgive anything that we give in obedience to him. So he's holy Lord, he's suffering Savior, and he's our ascended king. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at